am I going to do? I've watched it so many times and I keep having the same feeling. I think... I think I kind of like Spider-Man 3. But I feel like no one in the world feels the way I do. I just wish I had someone to talk to. What, what, what was that? Is someone there? Remember that part where there's that cool Sandman fight in the subway? So underrated. How about that time Peter dances down the street in his new black suit? So misunderstood! What about when Harry and Peter team up to fight Venom and save Mary Jane? So good. I kinda like Spider-Man 3. I want to talk about it too, Scott. That's why I've been looking for you. Looking? For, for me? Oh yeah. I know all about you. You do? Like what? Like the fact that we've recorded 245 podcasts covering every minute of Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, so if we stop now, it just doesn't seem right to me. Wait, that you, Zach? Look, I want to talk about Spider-Man 3. You want to talk about Spider-Man 3. Together, its bad reputation doesn't stand a chance. Interested? Yeah. But where can people find us? Oh, my spider sense is tingling, if you know what I mean. And it's telling me that they should look for Spider-Man Minute Season 3 on DuelingGenre.com or wherever they get their podcasts this summer. and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character and a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing emma woodhouse from the jane austen novel emma and joining me for the discussion is returning guest virginia McAllister. hello everyone welcome back virginia and welcome back for your second time talking about emma sort of yes (laughs) because i believe it was last time you were a guest we were talking about clueless yes which is famously a loose adaptation (laughs) Of, of Emma. You see the beats, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reading the book, you definitely see the material that they were working with. <laughs> um, and on this podcast, we've covered quite a bit of Jane Austen, but we've never tackled any version of Emma. And I was actually a little surprised when I was looking up material for this. There, uh, One reason we're doing this now is there's a new big screen adaptation of Emma that's going to be coming out. And when I looked it up, it listed the, the movie adaptations of Emma were Clueless, the Gwyneth Paltrow uh, adaptation of Emma, and this one that's coming up. Lots of TV miniseries, but uh, not very often has this one been, ad- been adapted for the big screen. I was very surprised to learn that. I thought for sure there were earlier adaptations. So. Especially with how many yeah. Pride and Prejudices we, we've, exactly. we, we've gotten, yeah. you know. Um, so Emma was written by Jane Austen and published in 1815. It tells the story of Emma Woodhouse, a young woman who fancies herself a matchmaker, but finds herself in a comedy of romantic errors. Um and so there, there's your one sentence summary of it. Virginia, do you remember when you came to Emma for the first time? Um, I don't remember the first time reading it. I probably in college. I don't think I read it in high school. Um, but I distinctly remember seeing the movie when it came out in the theater. Okay. So I do remember it, which was, I think, what, 96? It was in the 90s. I'd have to double check. So I probably saw the movie before I read the book, Mm -hmm. actually, because I don't think I read the book until some point in college. I had like a Jane Austen class or a, you know, Regency England class. And I think I had to be a lot of Jane Austen. Right. I think I had to read it (laughs) or read several Jane Austens as part of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I probably saw the movie before I actually read the book. Yeah, I definitely did as well. Um, In I, I don't actually remember when I first saw like Pride and Prejudice. I'm sure my mom showed us the miniseries. And I remember seeing my mom taking us to the Sense and Sensibility movie in the theaters. I don't think she did that for the Emma movie. Um, but I remember seeing that on VHS in our house. <laughs> probably my copy. Yeah, yeah, probably. For any <laughs> listeners who, who haven't listened before, Virginia's my sister. Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't say that off the top. Yeah, probably your copy. So I remember watching that, and I definitely remember seeing Clueless. And it was after college, I think, that I finally read Emma. Um, for this podcast, I listened to an Audible version. Um, and Jane Austen's prose definitely works for for Audible versions as well. So reading the prose, if you got a good narrator reading that, you get a lot of the wit uh, definitely coming through. Um, so a um, little bit of trivia about Emma. 
It was Austen's fourth novel and the last to be published in her lifetime. Well, I guess the fourth published novel, and this was the last in her lifetime. She had three novels uh, published posthumously, uh, and then also a couple um, incomplete novels that have, of course, since been adapted, and you know, various completed versions have been put out there <laughs> into the world. Uh, Emma has been adapted um, into eight TV movies or miniseries, uh, two different musicals, which I had no idea. <laughs> I did not either. <laughs> uh, uh, many handful uh, uh, play adaptations. It wasn't worth really uh, tracking those down. Uh, oh, and then uh, 1995 was the Gwyneth Paltrow film. Okay. Uh, so it's close. Yes. It was close. And it then was... there's yeah. the upcoming um, version that's going to be directed by Autumn de Wilde. Uh, I think that's how you're going to say uh, Well, that's how I'm going to say her last name. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, and that version looks um, definitely more um, broad. Like it's leading into the comedy more. It has a brighter color palette from the the previews I've seen, and and they're definitely highlighting some uh, famous comedic actors from from Britain in se- in several of the roles. Um, whereas the Gwyneth Paltrow one is more of your your classic Regency adaptation, like uh, being played more straight. So it'll be interesting to con- contrast the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right before we started recording, you had read this quote off, and I, I had it down in the notes before she began writing the novel. Austin wrote this down. She said, I'm going to take a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. <laughs> and uh, there is, I mean, we'll dig into this. Uh, Emma is has a lot of flaws for yes. a main character <laughs> that is, um, you know, at the heart of the, this style of story. That's all, you know, we always think of the Jane Austen stories of like the family of wonderful women that need to get married, you know, and, and uh, Emma, it does center a lot of her flaws early on, but it's a lot about her maturation um, mm-hmm. and her recognition of some of those flaws. But before we dig into that with the summary, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter ep- episodes in which Andrew and I break down newly released films or talk about trailers for upcoming films. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now, the full summary for Emma, I'm going to be trimming a lot of the character moments and this is what a lot of the content of this is actually fun side characters giving long monologues um that is character driven but not plot driven so uh the 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 plot summary is gonna go pretty quick here emma woodhouse has just attended the wedding of her former governess emma imagines she deserves some credit for the match of her governess to mr weston and she fancies herself to be an excellent matchmaker having caught the cupid bug she is interested in matching her new friend harriet smith with mr elton who is the vicar her sister's brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, uh, visits Emma's father often, and he knows the family well, and he warns Emma against this romantic meddling. Harriet receives a proposal from a man named Robert Martin, and Harriet is inclined to accept until Emma dissuades her. <laughs> like, Emma pretends she's not <laughs> trashing this match, right. <laughs> and, and she tells herself she's not, but really, she's she's very much signaling to, to Harriet, don't, don't accept this proposal. Uh, and uh, she implies that a better match is imminent for Harriet. And uh, Emma expects Mr. Elton to pursue uh, Harriet, but is very disappointed when Mr. Elton proposes to Emma. Uh, Emma rejects his proposal, and he leaves town to go soothe his eagle and uh, soothe his ego. He comes back with a pretentious wife. Harriet is heartbroken uh, over all of this, and Emma does feel a little bit of guilt about maybe having led her friend astray. Mr. Weston's son, Frank Churchill, arrives in town, as does a young woman named Jane Fairfax. Emma is used to being the center of attention and the recipient of all the praise in the town, and is a bit put out when everyone likes Jane Fairfax. (laughs) Jane was adopted by a colonel and is expected to take a post as a governess soon. Jane thinks she may be falling uh, that... that, um, uh, Jane thinks... Or, sorry, Emma thinks that she herself may be falling for Frank Churchill, but she's more inclined to think she'll never marry than that she'll fall madly in love. So she kind of, like, tamps down any uh, possible flirtations there. There's a ball, of course. And Harriet is left without a dance partner and is publicly snubbed by Mr. Elton. Uh, Knightley steps in and dances with Harriet. During another gathering, Emma lets her sarcastic wit get away from her and is too harsh to a family friend. Knightley chews her out for her immaturity and her lack of social grace. She makes a genuine effort to make up uh, for her behavior and... um, fix the relationship with the person that she had offended. People wonder if Knightley is in love with Jane. They also wonder if Jane is in love with Frank. Emma wonders if Frank is in love with her. And after some pronoun confusion is dispelled, she learns that Harriet is in love with Knightley. Uh, But then in the end, 
everything gets sorted out. And we find out that Frank and Jane had been secretly engaged all along, and they are happily paired off. Then Emma realizes that she's jealous of the idea of Harriet and Knightley being together because she herself is in love with Knightley. Fortunately, Knightley is in love with her, so they can be happily paired off. But now Emma is concerned about what this will mean for her friend Harriet. Fortunately, Robert Martin comes through with a second proposal for Harriet, which Harriet accepts, and now three weddings can be had in quick success succession the end well done uh like i said we're missing a few character moments there of, of the side characters who don't really drive the plot at all do you before we dig into emma herself are there any favorite side characters that you have from this that need some acknowledgement oh uh i think the most memorable probably her father and miss bates yes immediately come to mind mm-hmm. as you know they're they're there constantly throughout the novel and just give us so many moments to kind of roll our eyes yeah, they, <laughs> or kind of snicker at. They are absolutely, you know? absolutely there for comic relief. Like, yes. that is their role. They're not yeah. even really stumbling blocks. I, no. I, a little yeah. bit at the end, when Emma and Knightley are engaged, they're worried about disrupting her father's lifestyle. And he does, like, they, they announce they're engaged, and he really kind of says, well, must you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> must you be engaged? Uh, and they're like, well, Knightley's actually going to move here so that we don't disrupt your lifestyle. He's like, well, if we just carry on as we are, that wouldn't disrupt my lifestyle at all. <laughs> but, uh, you know, then he he he, he, he takes a liking around. to it. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so they're not even there as impediments. They're really just there for some, some fun. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, if you are familiar with, you know, Pride and Prejudice, you can see that Jane Austen has a type, perhaps, <laughs> when it comes to where she looks for comic relief. You know, the uh, hypochondriacs yes. <laughs> who, who are concerned about their health, um, people who, who just kind of mutter asides about the action rather than being involved in the action. Uh, you know, the, these are some of the uh, uh, the color that, that gets added to her stories. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, as far as the protagonist goes... Like we said at the beginning, Emma is definitely her flaws are her primary character trait that you see initially. Um, And so so what do you think of that as like the premise for a romantic novel? Um, Yeah, it's really interesting going back and reading the novel because it's been so long since I read it. And I was really struck by all her flaws again. Mm -hmm. I I didn't remember them as starkly as and how... um, like very class conscious she is like some of the comments she makes you know were kind of startling and i had to sort of gasp a few times ago okay <laughs> and, yeah she and really puts down sk- the lower class anyone who's right over that yeah like the way she talks about like robert martin and mm-hmm. how he's he's so beneath her and she couldn't possibly be associated with him and and for some reason i just hadn't remembered mm-hmm. it being so stark throughout the novel the the class social class consciousness and it's interesting because you know in other novels we see women of lower fortune right needing to marry to up, get into to the upper up, class right? and she do, she's already in the upper class so we see her like disdain of marriage mm-hmm. initially because she's like i I don't have any reason to marry. What did she say? I have no inducements to marry. You know, <laughs> like there's, I'm already rich. I'm already loved by my father. I'm already the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Why would I need to marry? You know, and so it's yeah. just, it's interesting to see such a a comparison of her to Jane Austen's other like heroines mm-hmm. in other novels. And I think there's something interesting that happens in the prose where it is very obvious that we are supposed to be appalled, like what you were right. saying. Like, w- yeah. this is not Jane Austen being oblivious to what her writing's doing. This is her critiquing Emma, and I, I would assume uh, Jane Austen critiquing the women that she's seen around her in right. her life, in, yeah. in her real life, right, in her own social experience, um, because it, it's told from often Emma's point of view, and we hear what Emma's thoughts are, um, but then we're also like clued into what the reality is. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're clued into where the disconnect is to what Emma fancies herself as being seen as, or how her opinion is obviously the right one. But then there's enough prose to the side of that, that is cluing in the reader that Emma is, is oblivious. She, she's very yeah. naive uh, at, at this moment. Um, and, and um, 
by the end of the novel, fortunately, a lot of that has passed, and there's a mm-hmm. much closer marriage of the reality that the prose is giving us and, and Emma's point of view. Um, but I was, I like you, like I didn't really remember that at all, uh, and it was mm-hmm. a little surprising to see that contrast so, be, being so apparent and being so so centered in the opening of the novel and introducing us to the protagonist that we're supposed to be rooting for ostens- ostensibly. Um, and there's there's definitely a little bit um, of uh, like. I like how you said, like a little astonishment, like oh, she's yeah. <laughs> she's a little prickly, yes, <laughs> and, and also unaware, like mm-hmm. um, you know, like very self centered. Um, and you see how she came to be self centered in the descriptions of everyone around her. Um, right. like she's never been told that she's wrong, that her opinions aren't valued <laughs> until Knightley does it. Like Knightley, mm-hmm. like she needs this dose of reality coming yes. at her from from Knightley, um, which he's doing out of love, but he is not handling her with you know, care when he doesn't right. like he's, he's willing to be harsh and say, you were wrong. You need to be censored, right? You know, censured mm-hmm. right now. Uh, and you need to go correct this, which fortunately she does. Um, so yeah, it's, um, a little unexpected, but it, it shows, I think some savviness by Jane Austen as a writer. Um, PBS has been doing an adaptation of Sanditon, one of her unfinished novels, mm-hmm. which I don't know much at all about the unfinished, that unfinished novel. Um, and so I don't know how much they're filling in and, you know, versus how much was here for the plot or, or, but it is delving into issues of race in the British empire. Hmm. And it is delving into issue, very heavily into issues of class in the British empire. And it's like, Oh, you know, when you just think of Jane Austen as the fun coupling romance comedies, uh, I think we're missing some of the depth. <laughs> That's oh, there. Yeah. yeah. I do remember that from the class I took, you know, that we definitely talked about, the the satire and the criticism and and things like that you know that it's not just a romantic comedy or a lighthearted story there's there's a lot of undercurrent beneath it mm-hmm. that's very critical it, it's just taking a very critical eye to society yes you where know, like in pride and prejudice on. we there's definitely the undercurrent of angst like if these daughters mm-hmm. don't marry well I don't know what their lives will be right. like. And so that angst is, is present. And sometimes it gets broadened for comedic purposes in their mother. Right. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, this is a little overwhelming, but then you stop and think about like, what is the mother's concerns? It's literally the life and well being of, of her four daughters. And that is why yeah. she's obsessed with them getting married. And this one, it's like you said, it, it's twisting that. And now the criticism is somewhat pointed at our protagonist, not at, mm-hmm. you know, society as a whole, but at, at a member of that society. Yeah. Well, because she represents the upper class, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which is usually, I think, when she is taking a critical eye, it's usually at, you know, the more upper class uh-huh. levels of society. And so, you know, Emma is a prime representation <laughs> of that. Um, and so she's definitely treating her, you know, in that way. So at least she's consistent between yeah. her novels, you know. <laughs> and also, we're not suddenly going to have a sympathetic <laughs> upper class. Yeah. Although Knightley is also upper class mm-hmm. and he's very much. The opposite, you know, very kind, very charitable, very um, much open to just associating with mm-hmm. anyone, you know, you see in the way he talks about like Robert Martin versus the way she talks about him, you know, that they're both on the same level compared to Robert Martin, but they treat him and talk about him in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not like it's, it's, you know, that she's against the upper class in general. It's this one attitude, this this particular attitude. Similarly, uh, you can see like some critique about um, hypocritical religious figures (laughs) across her novels. All of her novels. That is another consistency for sure. Yeah. And and kind of like you're saying, it's not the upper class per se that gets criticized because certainly there are heroes in the upper class and we... You know, yeah. we applaud when uh, Lizzie Bennet is able to rise, right. you know. And marry Mr. Darcy. <laughs> it's about particular aspects of members of those classes. And, yeah. and similarly, it's it's particular hypocrisy she sees in, in overtly religious figures uh, versus the idea of religion. You know, like, the idea of religion isn't being mocked right. um, in these. It's it's certain types. Right. Yeah. Um, in this, uh, I, I remember when we talked about Clueless, we said it was a bit uncomfortable to see the student coming back from college and falling for the 16 year old. Uh, but in the, and I think you pointed out then, well, age is one of the big barriers in the story of Emma. And I think it's one reason why she doesn't see Knightley as a romantic figure um, mm-hmm. until, until the end is because there is this 10 year age gap. Does it ever say explicitly how old Emma is in the novel? I think it's actually even more than that. I think they say she's like 21 or 22. Uh-huh. And I think he's about 37. Oh, okay. 35, so- <laughs> 37. I, I'm trying to, but I think that jumped out at me at one point that, Whoa, they have a bigger age gap than I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's fairly wide. Um, 
And, and then the comment he makes about, well, I've been in love with you since you were 13. And you just go, what? Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't age well. Yeah. <laughs> different time. Different, different time. Different time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At least you didn't act on it for a while. You know, yeah. kept that under wraps. It's like, wait, how old are Romeo and Juliet? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, true. Yes. yes. <laughs> so what it is. Or, or uh, Edgar Allan Poe married. Oh, wait, she was how old? Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah uh, you just gotta... Uh, just cringe a little yeah, bit with cringe, the modern cringe. sensibilities. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. But I, I think that's one reason why why he is consistently presented as the more mature figure, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the and you like you've pointed out all the differences in how they talk about everything. Like you get the sense that he um he under uh, I think his understanding of Emma is is somewhat born by the idea that he's been through this process. Like he yeah. he probably had some days where he was a little more arrogant and self centered <laughs> and yeah. and age has has worn that away, as it does so often. <laughs> True. <laughs> Well, and that's a good point. You know, that coming into the novel, we do get them at at very different points in their lives Mm -hmm. and and different experiences and things like that. I know at one point they do have a conversation about how much more life he's lived, basically, you know, and and I don't remember. Somewhere in there, they discuss, you know, ages or age gaps or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so, you know, there's at least the sense that there's a pretty significant age gap. And he points out, you know, that... Yeah, I've had longer to live and more experience and, you know, basically his attitude is you should let me guide you a little bit in some mm-hmm. of these things because of that. Um, yeah, and, and and speaking of Jane Austen's prose, I think it's somewhat remarkable that it doesn't come off too patronizing or too father-daughtery. It's true, <laughs> and it, it doesn't. It doesn't you know, at all. It really doesn't. Wait, yeah, which it could very easily. <laughs> yes. So kudos to her for not going that And be wrong. way more cringy. Yes. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so for that particular pairing, and, and this is a novel about romantic coupling, like, mm-hmm. like it's comedy because they all end up getting married at the end. Um, for Emma Knightley, one of the biggest barriers is that she doesn't seem as a romantic figure in part because he's of, of the age and she's always her whole life seen him as the established bachelor who just, you mm-hmm. know, is, is living yeah. his happy life. And so the idea of him as a romantic figure hasn't really entered her, her mind, it seems, until she starts thinking about Harriet and Knightley being paired. And then she's like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think actually we get hints of it a little bit when some people try to pair him with Jane. Mm-hmm. Fairfax. Again, again. And she's, she's, she's very much against the idea of it, but like later in the novel, she even says, I didn't even realize why mm-hmm. I was so against it at the time, but right. it was because, you know, that she she, had she feelings loved him, that she wasn't, but boarding. she wasn't acknowledging that, or and, she wasn't conscious you know, of them. Or, yet. Um, and you know, she seems to kind of, if anything, I think think of him maybe more as like a brother type mm-hmm. figure, yes. you know, which is fair because her sister is married to his brother, right? So they're you know kind of in laws, and seems to see him more as a brotherly figure throughout until. Mm-hmm. Some of those moments where you start to yeah. see it change a little bit. Um, what are the other impediments that we get to some of these romantic pairings, though, besides just age for Emma and Knightley? Um, uh, any of the pairings or just Emma and Knightley? Uh, the other pairing. Like, I want to pick out what what is being presented in this idea, you know, in this novel about love and what works and what you know, what is going to prevent it from coming about. Well, for Harriet, it's Emma is the biggest (laughs) impediment to her happiness, which is, you know, I think Emma is truly genuine in like wanting people to be happy and well paired and matched. And, you know, and especially for Harriet, she seems to genuinely like her Mm -hmm. and want her, you know, to be matched. I mean, she's a little bit of a project for her, but um, but yeah, I, Emma is Harriet's biggest impediment, ironically, you know, throughout because she's the one planting wrong ideas for Harriet. Of what a good match is the whole be. novel, basically. Yeah. You know, they're going into you know wrong ideas of who she should be with or who likes her and things like that. Yeah, it's very much like being in high school, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is why it works so me. well to shift it to clueless, right? Yeah. You know, that's, oh, it it worked amazingly well. You uh-huh. know, and. Oh yeah, yeah, where where everyone thinks they know what everyone else is thinking, and everyone's pretending right. to think one thing for you know performative aspects, or know? who likes who, yeah. and what all these little you know like yeah. r- dissecting the little note, the riddle, <laughs> or, Mr. Helton, or when Harriet's like, I held on to this pencil that he <laughs> once wrote with, and so this like high school scrap of a note <laughs> that has his name on it. 
And, and then I was like, what else do you have? That's it. I'm so sorry. I've been carrying these around. <laughs> such a great scene. Because <laughs> it's so, in a way, it's still so modern. You know, mm-hmm. like, I've got teenage daughters, and I hear their conversations with their friends, you know, and it, it's like those types of conversations could absolutely be lifted and just plunked down in the middle of junior mm-hmm. high or high school today. And they yeah. still hold up, you know, those types of conversations and emotional angst and drama and things yeah. like that. So I, I think one thing that prevents Emma from like feeling like a villainous a, a little bit in this is as is what you said about like she is genuinely trying to be good but, yeah. and trying to help. And even though she's very naive and self-centered and short-sighted and all these other you know, issues there at the start of the novel, um, her motivation is always good, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so she, she's not trying to mess with Harriet's love life for her own nefarious ends until at the end when she th- a little bit where she thinks Harriet might be in love with Knight or, or no, she's been told Harriet is in love with Knightley. And then she realizes, no, wait, I am. And then she finds out Knightley's in love with her. She's like, but, but then it's not like, uh, like her concern is what is this going to do to Harriet? Mm-hmm. It, it's not yeah. like, how do I manipulate Harriet to keep her out of the scene? It's like, Oh no, this is going to devastate her. Um, yeah. and so she's still motivated by concern, um, and care. So yeah, for, for Harriet, it's, it's, there's a lot of bad advice. <laughs> Emma's the biggest hindrance by far, but, but some of her <laughs> motivations for hindering are, um, class issues mm-hmm. that, that you already noted. Yep. And also her, her just utter misreading. <laughs> Of every uh, of the men around her, Clueless is such a good. I I kept thinking that the whole time I was reading it that Clueless is just the best description of her. Mm-hmm. You know, so often she's just I don't know it's if it's naivete or just yeah what it is that makes her so clueless about mm-hmm. what's going on around her. But but and, and then marching forward with yeah. that unearned self confidence, yes, <laughs> of youth, like yeah. I've got this. <laughs> I've done this one successfully. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> okay. So then we also have um, Churchill and Jane, yes. right? Where they were secretly engaged. So they were together, but then he has to pretend they're not, which makes her jealous. So she's going to call it all off because he's pretending to not be in love with her, even though they all agreed to this plot, which is the, tr- like, I feel yeah. like this is the plot of so many, even like modern is like, okay, we're going to pretend to be engaged. And then suddenly they're really in love or, well, we are engaged, but we have to pretend not to be and that gets everyone jealous and angry, <laughs> you know, all the time. So, yeah. so there's still very modern romantic comedy tropes that are present, mm-hmm. uh, in Emma, um, the secret engagement was because, again, of class issues, right? Because she was um, adopted. They didn't know her birth, even though she'd been adopted well, into th- a respectable family. I think they knew her birth. She just was poor. Because uh, she was, what is it? Mrs. Bates' niece, right? Oh, was, it, was it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure and she, she... But she'd been adopted by the colonel, right? Yes. Because, like, her parents... I, I don't remember the whole situation. The father had done some service for the colonel in the war and died. Right. But what the... You know, maybe both families didn't agree to her parents' marriage or something. Like, it seems uh-huh. like there was some conflict about yeah. that. Both parents died. Mm-hmm. And then she was eventually taken in by colonel campbell's right. family i don't remember what the whole backstory uh-huh. was to her so it wasn't like she was illegitimate or mm-hmm. anything like that but she just didn't have the rank but, and, and, and they they mentioned you know obviously over and over the baits are are of lower lower wealth mm-hmm. you know maybe not lower social standing but they don't have the money to kind of support a lifestyle that would you know give them a higher social standing and so whereas frank churchill is with his aunt and uncle. So it's interesting that there is that duality of, you know, they're both raised not by their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also confusion or conflict over his his parents' marriage, I think. You know, so there's like this duality between them that mm-hmm. kind of struck me this time. But but he's being raised by a much more wealthy family. Um, the aunt and uncle, they have no, I think, no children of their own. So he's going to inherit everything, it seems like. And and his aunt's very picky um, <laughs> yes. and demanding. And and the sense is that she would not approve of Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, despite, you know, Jane being like universally admired for her beauty and her talent and, you know, everything that you would think a woman should have, you know, to make her... Um, but she's admire, going to go work but, as a governess. Yeah, but, so. You know, but it's like because she has, she doesn't have the money. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it'd be scandalous to go marry yeah. a governess. Then she wouldn't would be approved. Which is, yeah, yeah. So I, I think a lot of this does um, boil down to class critiques 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, um, and that's um, the hindrance to to the happiness uh, mm-hmm. of all these characters, and, and you know the the romantic satisfaction uh, that they're 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 looking for. And, but then the guardians of the class status, like the their argument is always, well, like you. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't. This isn't done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, 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 you know, the the differences would be too great. Um, and the the triumph of the end of the novel is kind of saying, yeah, whatever. We're gonna have three marriages. <laughs> Although, <laughs> if you look at all three marriages, they are more or less in keeping with the class. It's, it's not gaps, a complete upending right? of it's, the structure. It's Emma and Mister Knightley who are, you know, the wealthiest households in the little society and then Jane and Frank who do, you know, have their parallels to right. um, their, even their, their station in life. Even if the families would have disapproved, they're not right. wildly different. No. Um, and the, and if she had actually worked as a governess, Harriet I think it would have been. Harriet and Robert Martin, you know, are also from the lower the end lower of the, end end of the, of the uh, You know, so, so the marriages still keep the levels of society. And I, that was almost, I think, part of her point is that these can be successful marriages because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates quite a challenge to you when you come from different backgrounds or different, yeah. you know, class structures um, or who, things like that. Which what is the vicar's wife that he comes back with? Oh, uh, I can't remember her name. Elton's wife. Uh, they just call her Miss Hawkins. Right, it's her maiden name. But, but, but I don't remember. It's her very first name. clearly stated that she's nouveau riche, and right. this is kind of gauche. The way that she acts about yes. everything and the way she talks about everything. Yeah. Um, is and he's very kind of an upstart, <laughs> and he wants to get ahead in society. So marrying yeah. her, you know, so all the pairings are kind of keeping the structure in mm-hmm. place and keeping it going. Yeah. In, so in even a as there way. is some criticizing right. of the structures in the end, it is also getting a, upholding it. Uh, upholding you know? it. I mean, not not perfectly because like uh, yeah. you know. Uh, Harriet and and uh, Richard like that was opposed initially because he's too far beneath her and, and although uh, Knightley says that he's actually above her because she's illegitimate mm, you know right. and so and he's a respectable farmer so he actually says Robert Martin is above it's Harriet really good for you her. know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's interesting I, well and look look at British society today it hasn't changed much in <laughs> some ways <laughs> some of these issues are still going strong so <laughs> if, if you try and disrupt it sometimes there's pushback sometimes it doesn't go well you know and and I think that's it's a legitimate call out, you mm-hmm. know, that when you do come from very different backgrounds or, you know, whatever they may be, race or religion or social standing or whatever, you really have to work to kind of overcome and find, you know, a happy medium in some of those things and a common background. So. Yeah, and, and even if the the pair themselves are willing to overlook it, it doesn't mean that Everybody Everyone else, around their families right. or society are going to be overlooking this. Like it, it can remain a stumbling block to mm-hmm. their lives, not necessarily like their their relationship one to one, but yeah. just as they carry forward. Yeah. Um. Like tradition has a lot of momentum behind it. It does. <laughs> yeah. Um. What do you think about the transformation of Emma? Does it feel earned? I think so. I yeah. I mean, I I think like you said, it's at the beginning. You're not really cheering. She's not a heroine you're cheering for, um, even though you know. And and it's interesting that this one is named Emma. You know, and it's kind of like Jane Jane Austen's telling you, this is going to be the one you're going to be cheering yeah. for in the end. But you know, you're going to have to give her some rope and, and let her learn some things throughout because uh, at the beginning she's a tough one to cheer for at times and yeah um but i do think you definitely see those moments of of realization and self-awareness start to come about mm-hmm. um and so because of that you do you know kind of get behind her and want to see her happy and and settled and things like that i I know this is going to echo some of the conversation we had with clueless because it's unavoidable (laughs) um but like um knightley's profession of his love for her doesn't happen until she's matured (laughs) basically to a point um like even though he says like i've been in love with you for a while like he's not ready to go public with this because i think he sees a lot of that immaturity and he knows I'm, this wouldn't be a good match. Even if I'm attracted to her, this wouldn't mm-hmm. be a good match, um, of us together until he sees things like, okay, I, I corrected her, but she actually like took it to heart mm-hmm. and she 
didn't just feel bad. Like she took new actions right. to try and repair the damage that she'd done with the baits. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, like that's the moment where you like really start to like, okay, we can root for her now. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is interesting because like, it's, it's a character that comes, this isn't like a pull yourself up from by the bootstraps kind of mm-hmm. protagonist story where it's like, okay, we're going to root for them because they're overcoming all these obstacles. This is a character with some internal flaws Mm-hmm. That are going to be corrected um, as the novel goes forward. She starts at a privileged position. Um, in contrast, that there was another novel I read recently where there was a character who said something like, I-, "I wanted to be this because when I was twelve, someone told me I was good at that thing, and it was the first thing I was ever told I was good mm. at. So now that's the job I want, right. know, the career I want." And I just remember reading that and thinking, "That is the opposite of Emma. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Emma, we understand where these flaws are coming because she's just been coddled by mm-hmm. her her father and her governess." Her whole life, like her whims are their demands. <laughs> like, right. You know, like yeah. like they're gonna follow through on her whims. She's been praised for everything that she's done. Like there's the scene mm-hmm. with the portraits, <laughs> where this is another one of those scenes where it's so well written because Emma is like honestly saying stuff, but the audience is just distant enough to really see what's happening here. Right. Where where she's like, you know, there's there's a handful, but I, you know, I haven't been able to to finish them, and, and like we're, we're becoming aware that she's just lacks focus and she's never yeah. had the drive, and and she's like, I know. Uh, she's like, I, uh, these all received a lot of praise, and, and like she starts to them, and they're all like half finished, right. <laughs> and, and everything. And it's a very revealing moment about mm-hmm. how this character got to be the way they are, and to see, um, uh, it's just interesting to me to see a character who is so flawed, but we understand that that how how exactly she came to be. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're just given enough glimpses and insight into her um, years of development to understand, of course, Emma is this way. Um, yeah. And then through the course of the novel, see just the right moments in her life to correct it and see her now happily married off and say, that's a relationship that can work. Um, right. Like it's, yeah. it, it's a very um, uh, well, well, well-turned character portrait, I think, by, by Jane Austen. I think so too. I agree with that. Um, do you have any favorite moments from it besides, like, we, we've hit a few of the highlights of, uh, the particular scenes of, of like, Harriet with the, the collection of, of mementos, <laughs> or, or Jane, <laughs> Jane with the portraits that she's tried to write? Um, oh, I have to think about it. I, I do like the ball scene, just because I think the novel changes. Like, that, for me, was a really pivotal scene, where it just felt like, the novel was a little different before mm-hmm. that and then after that. Um, because I think, um, well, there were, you know, several things. It just really seemed to highlight everyone's character. Like, you see the true meanness of Mr. Elton and his wife. Oh, yeah. And you also see Emma start to see Mr. Knightley a little differently. Like, there's uh-huh. a, a moment where she sees him standing with all the other, like, older men. The married and, men who aren't going to go out on the dance right, floor. And she sees him as, like, standing out from all of he them. He looks strong. And he starts to, <laughs> right. she, you know, it's like she first starts to kind of notice him as a man, not just this sort of brother figure the that's, family been, friend, right? that's been in her life for yeah. years and years and years. She kind of, like, sees him, it, you know, uh-huh. and, and it's also when... He rescues he, Harriet. He rescues Harriet and starts to talk to her and really sees her as a person and not just right. Emma's project. That's right. So it just feels like we see everybody magnified in that mm-hmm. scene. And I really like that. And it, it feels like everything after that takes a slightly different tone and progress yeah, from that moment. We've, we've mentioned how, like how much progress we see in Emma, but Knightley also changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's in that scene because he, um, in arguing for, Robert, the farmer being above Harriet, oh, yeah. he's also kind of putting down Harriet and very much uh, yeah, yeah. saying she's frivolous. She, like you said, you know, she, she's of no birth. Uh, yeah. and, and she's silly. And she's Emma, kind of clueless. You're, you, you know, you're kind of molding her. Like yeah. everything that she is is what you're molding. Uh, you're molding her to be. And in that scene, when he initially out of just pity, but also like a sense of decorum, mm-hmm. <laughs> goes to dance with Harriet, who's been left alone and also been has been shamed by, mm-hmm. by Mr. Elton, and he goes to dance with her. Like you said, he, he realizes there's there's more depth to her, and he starts to see her as a person and not just as Emma's, you know, protege. Right. <laughs> that, yeah. That's being carried along. And so there's that moment of transformation, and he starts to... Um, I can't remember. Does it say that he... Uh, how does Robert come back to propose to her again? Does, does Knightley have a hand in that? I can't, I can't um, remember for sure. No, that twist. No, it's um. So it's when she has Harriet go stay with her sister in oh. London, uh-huh. and then 
I think Robert is on, maybe he's on an errand mm-hmm. for Mr. Knightley. Um, and somehow he ends up in the house, uh, in the household of, you know, Mr. Knightley's brother married to Emma's sister and Harriet's there. And so they become reacquainted, mm-hmm. you know, in London, I think it is. Yeah. That, you know, A lot of that happens off page. It, it kind of, <laughs> ha- yeah, it happens like off scene. Like yeah. we're, we're suddenly told they're engaged and then we get the backstory. Yeah. Um, of it. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So, but sir, I think at that point with the engagement, both Knightley and Emma say, "Oh, this is a good match." You know, yes, <laughs> they can both agree. You know that. Yeah, and I agree that this is a different a, a time where we we see Mister Knightley. You know, kind of mm-hmm. change a little bit and become a little more open um, to things, and you know, and it's also the scene where we see him and Emma dance at the end. You know, where. Yeah. Where he says, who are you going to dance with? And she says, you know, well, you, if you'll ask me. So, yeah. you know, we kind of, we start to see a little bit of them building towards a more romantic relationship and not mm-hmm. just this sort of friendship that they've had all along. So Jane Austen obviously can write a ball. <laughs> <laughs> They're very important scenes, we know. So. Yeah. And also they are very cinematic, so they never drop yes. <laughs> the balls when they're doing an adaptation of these stories for, for film or television. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they're like the um, the Keir Knightley Pride and Prejudice. I love what they do with the oh. ball scene in that. Yes. And when, when they like, touch base with every character. Like you mm-hmm. said, it, it gives you a chance to kind of magnify every character and see how they're being seen right. uh, by, by, by everyone else. What is it about the, a ball, per se, do you think that allows Jane Austen to really dig in and like often they're pivotal scenes, like you're saying, like, yeah. like, like the story, the narrative actually swings within yes. the balls very often. Um, this is a really good question. I think part of it might be that it's this, it's such a social event, you know, mm-hmm. and a social gathering. So you get so many characters in the same room at the same time. And so quite often, I think that's part of it that, like you said, the cinematic element of kind of cutting from character to character, because they're all in the same place, and mm-hmm. they're all experiencing the same experience at the right. same time, but you can see it from all their different viewpoints. Yeah. Um, And just, you know, like, just those types of social events, like, my 14 year old daughter just went to her first real dance on mm-hmm. Friday and it was the, the dress, finding the perfect dress and getting the hair and the makeup done and just look, you know, so it, everything's I, turned up. Everything is turned up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, and with that, your personality's turned up, you know, and so like there's you a said, performance it, it aspect magnifies everyone mm-hmm. a little bit and makes them a little more dramatic and like just makes everything. Yeah weightier mm-hmm. you know it's like it means uh, who's gonna dance with who that means a lot right yeah. you know and and how do you dance and, and, and like all of these things mean things you know in sort of a a non-verbal yeah. language the, the, um, there's a really very interesting odd blend of strict custom but also letting loose yeah. right that, that's, that's present there where there are the way things are done and the dance is a very strict formula and, and how it goes but also Everyone's a, a little amped up and more relaxed right. from, you know, from the traditional social mores. Like, for very, very buttoned down Regency England, it's almost like carnival. <laughs> like, you're like, we're going to go for four. Like, we're this is as close as they get. <laughs> this is as close as they get to going. Like, we're going to go go crazy for, you know, yeah. for, for an evening. Yeah. Um, and we're all going to be performing. And, and um, I, I think it's, it's um, simultaneously... They're putting on masks for performance because there is all these social customs, but they're also revealing themselves through yeah. what masks they choose and also through the individual moments mm-hmm. uh, that happen for the characters in the, in the balls where, where things go the way or don't and you, and, and you get insight uh, into that. Um, so, so it, I now I feel like there's so much to say about Jane Austen and balls. <laughs> right? I, I feel like there are papers that need to be written just about, you know, pulling apart the ball scenes of mm-hmm. each of her novels. And there probably have been yeah, papers, probably, I'm I, sure, you know, papers written on this. But yeah, I agree. It's, but the, it's but really now I'm also think really about. thinking about the adaptations, too. and like Right. And yeah. how the adaptations handle... Ooh. Oh, this is so fun. <laughs> so, yeah, so much to think about. Because, um, yeah, actually, when I was in that Regency England class, my professor told me if I ever wanted to go on to do thesis and, and dissertation work in Regency England, she liked some of my approaches to some Jane Austen stuff. So now yeah. I'm like thinking back on it going, like, oh, is there? I to, Could I? Should I revisit <laughs> some things? <laughs> <clears throat> Well, and I love, um, like, just talking about adaptations of Jane Austen, I remember at a conference seeing a paper on, um, it was particular scenes in Pride and Prejudice, but showing how every adaptation is dealing with the text, but then also has to react to and and 
one up, <laughs> you know, what, what, right. what, you know, what came in previous adaptations. And I just remember seeing, um, the, the, um, Jennifer L version of mm-hmm. Lizzie Bennet, like going and standing on a hillside. And then it was the Kira Knightley version standing on a cliffside. <laughs> and then they did a Bollywood one where she was in a helicopter flying over these fountains. <laughs> and, and it was the exact same scene moment uh-huh. in the film. And it was just right. like, we're getting higher and, right. and more, higher and more uh, extreme right. you know, <laughs> in every version that has to come along. Cause you're not just adapting the story. True. You're, you're having to put your own new spin uh, on it, which uh, I don't know how this new Emma adaptation is going to go. Like I said, it seems to be leaning more yeah. into the comedy. You know, mm-hmm. a side of it um than the the regency side, yes. <laughs> side yeah of it. it seems well it seems to be set in a re it has a regency feel mm-hmm. in its drafts it, you know they haven't yeah. made it a modern one it does feel like much tighter beats and a little snarkier and, yeah you know and, and just, the comedic characters are a little broader yeah like, yes, like so. i'm assuming the Bates was uh the, oh the the actress has a a, a british sitcom called miranda that's on on hulu mm. i think her, her the actress's first name is miranda i think she was the miss Bates in the the equipping uh, Emma and that British sitcom I highly recommend. <laughs> she right. she does a fantastic broad British mm-hmm. comedic character, and so you see and that re- casting, and it's like okay, that works. Really, you could take Miss Bates and take her in a completely comedic vein, mm-hmm. and it would be fabulous. Yeah. Like just it in the novel, she's she's very serious about everything she's doing and everything yeah. she's saying, and everybody's just sort of eye-rolling at her a little mm-hmm. bit, but you really could swing that just a little bit further, and, <laughs> and that's what she it would be looks great like in the trailer. Maybe, maybe it's a different <laughs> character, but from the trailer, that's what I... I that, yeah. that was the match I made. Yeah, so you could have a lot <laughs> of fun that. with that. <laughs> uh, any other particular moments from the, the story, or anything about Emma that you want to make sure we, we acknowledge? Um... Well, my favorite scene is always the scene when she and Mr. Knightley meet up again, you know, after he's gone to London and she's realized she's in love with him. And I just, I love the scene of of the tension and kind of the trying to read each other Mm -hmm. and figure out... Well, I know how I feel, but I don't know how you feel, and I'm trying to figure out how you feel. Because this is the moment where she, Emma knows Harriet is in love with Knightley, and Harriet has said, well, he did this and this and this that made me think he reciprocates. And now Emma's like, oh, he probably does. Right. (laughs) And she's trying to figure out, well, is he talking about Harriet? Wait, could he be talking about me? And it's kind of the first... I think it's the first time you see Emma sort of self-doubt mm-hmm. or, you know, wonder, like, am I good enough for it? Yes. Like, she's been told her whole life, you're good enough. You're great. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're talented. And I think it's the first time you see her kind of wonder, am I enough? And as a woman, that really strikes a chord, you know, because mm-hmm. I think as women, we... I, I've heard this for you know there's lots of of talk of you know just this idea of being enough Mm -hmm. um and so to see her kind of reach that stage it makes her very human and very 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 relatable Mm -hmm. and i think that's when you really get behind her and you really want to see her win you know or not win but you want to see her be happy and you want to see her get the guy you yeah. know kind of thing like you're used to seeing the guy get the girl and uh-huh. you kind of want to see the girl get the guy <laughs> in this case <laughs> and and again praising jane austen's prose i think she does a pretty amazing job of um following the structure of the book which means we're privy to emma's interior thoughts like mm-hmm. we get her interior monologue we don't get Knightley's, but we know exactly what he's thinking because of how it's written in this in right. the scene in the description, and you know, oh, he does like her, but he doesn't know if she likes him, right. and, and so he's just hesitant because um, there, there's the moment where I, I, he says something ambiguous, does it like deliberately a, a bit vague, mm-hmm. and there's a long pause, and Emma's like, I don't want to follow up on that because I know he's going to say that he's in love with Harriet, right? And then he's like. I see you don't want to coax Follow this out of this. you don't want to coax this out of me. Because he doesn't realize she's because thinking, he thinks, he's talking about Harriet. He thinks yeah. I've just left a huge clue for right. her, and if she picks this up, it means she likes me. And she's just letting it hang there because she doesn't want her heart broken. And his heart is being broken by that silence <laughs> yes. that's hanging between them. And we get all of that without any of his interior thoughts. Right. And, and so I just I, I remember that scene thinking, oh, that was a really well presented mm-hmm. um, scene because because sometimes. Authors 
you know, they set up the novel in a certain way and, and they break it for the value of a scene, which right. sometimes it's like, whatever, you can do that. But to be able to get everything you wanted without breaking the structure that you've established and the point of view that you've established, I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I agree. I, that's always been one of my favorite moments of any, you know, adaptation mm-hmm. or, or just the novel itself is I love that moment of them coming back together and trying to sort of figure things out, you mm-hmm. know, and... Well, and it's so well written on the page, it must be delicious to perform. Yeah. <laughs> like, for actors, like, it's gotta be like, oh, this is what I'm here for. Right. <laughs> and so, I think you're gonna be getting the best from from mm-hmm. every actress playing Emma and every actor playing, <laughs> playing uh, Knightley in that moment. Um, yeah. And really leaning into the glances and and the pauses like like mm-hmm. how long do i wait in between every line that's going to be delivered right. um all of that's going to carry meaning and so much of that meaning you're being told what it's what it should be on the page but how do i how do i now translate that into right. into this performance right here yeah well uh any final thoughts about emma mm-hmm. where does it rank for you in the in the jane austen Oh, so my absolute favorite is actually Persuasion, which a lot of people don't talk about. I don't think there's been a major film adaptation. There's been some TV adaptations. Yeah, some BBC uh, miniseries. But it's one that I've probably read ten times. Mm -hmm. I I really love Persuasion, and it's kind of, I think, one of those underrated, you know, or or glanced over. Um, I don't know. Oh, man, they're hard to rank after that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think... I do love Emma, but it might be because I love the Gwyneth Paltrow version mm-hmm. so, 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 so much. I love her as Emma. I think she's so perfect as her. Was that one of her first roles in film? I, I think she was pretty young. Yeah. I don't know if it was her first role. I mean, she grew up, you know, with the right. actress mother and mm-hmm. stuff. So I don't know that it was her first role. I feel role, like it, but, she got award nominations and everything out of that, right? She was pretty young. Um, so, oh... But in terms of the actual novel, I would say I probably like Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. a little better than Emma. Ugh, yeah, and then, and then Sense and Sensibility, <laughs> which I those like. are the four that were completed I don't know in that her lifetime, I right? Love it, you know, as much as some of the others. But Persuasion is definitely my first, and then probably Pride and Prejudice narrowly edges out Emma, mm-hmm. and then Sense and Sensibility. Yeah, and then I have Sanditon on my shelf, but I've never read it. Um, <laughs> well, I, or Northanger Abbey. Yeah, Northanger right. Abbey. Is the... um, I don't know that I've ever really read through all. And there's of them, one other so. unfinished one yeah. I think that has been kicked around. You know, how about like, you? Where would you rank them? I, I think I go Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, then Emma, then I. I've seen a BBC miniseries of Persuasion, but I've never read read the novel, so I couldn't, yeah, couldn't oh, say for the novel. I love the. I don't know why. Yeah. Just something about it. I I just love the novel. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for downloading. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 80, when we talked about Pride and Prejudice. Number 84, when we talked about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Number 96, when we talked about Sense and Sensibility. Or number 249, when we talked about Clueless. Jane Austen is definitely in our Mount Rushmore. Andrew of of (laughs) most discussed creators uh, on on the protagonist podcast Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we're also on twitter you can follow at protagonistpod or at jadarowski and our producer Andrew is at disminute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long Why do you have to get married? We're in love. Mm. (laughs) Is that a good reason?